Bibles with me this morning to Revelation chapter 8. Or if you have your immersed Bible, it is page 464 that we are studying today. Revelation chapter 8, immersed Bible, page 464. I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and they were given seven trumpets. Then another angel with a gold incense burner came and stood at the altar. A great amount of incense was given him to mix with the prayers of God's people as an offering on the gold altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense mixed with the prayers of God's holy people ascended up to God from the altar where the angel had poured them out. Then the angel filled the incense burner with fire from the altar and threw it down upon the earth. And thunder crashed, lightning flashed, and there was a terrible earthquake. Then the seven angels with the seven trumpets prepared to blow their mighty blast. The first angel blew his trumpet, and hail and fire mixed with blood were thrown down on the earth. One third of the earth was set on fire. One-third of the trees were burned, and all the green grass was burned. Then the second angel blew his trumpet, and a great mountain of fire was thrown into the sea. One-third of the water in the sea became blood. One-third of all living things in the sea died, and one-third of all the ships on the sea were destroyed. Then the third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from the sky, burning like a torch. It fell on one-third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star was Bitterness. It made one-third of the water bitter, and many people died from drinking the bitter water. Then the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and one-third of the stars and they became dark. And one-third of the day was dark, and also one-third of the night. And I looked, and I heard a single eagle crying loudly as it flew through the air, Tear, tear, tear to all who belong to this world, because of what will happen when the last three angels blow their trumpets. Father, we thank you for these words. And we recognize that even though they are ominous and foreboding, they are your words. Your words which you have graciously given us so that we might know what is to come and might prepare ourselves for your return. Holy Spirit, you are the Spirit that testifies of Jesus. And the Spirit of Jesus is the Spirit of prophecy. We pray that you would give us understanding and insight today. But most of all, we pray that you would impact us by these words, that you would speak convictingly and transformingly through your words today and that we would be changed because we have heard your truth today. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Many of our history books contain the story of a great fire that occurred over three days in 1871. It was the Great Chicago Fire. No one is certain exactly how it began. Some believe that a cow kicked over a lantern in a barn and that the fire quickly spread. Before it was contained, 3.3 square miles of Chicago had burned. 17,000 structures had been destroyed and 300 people had died. Most people, however, 
have never heard of the Great Peshtigo Fire. The Great Peshtigo Fire began on the same night as the Great Chicago Fire. Five hours drive north of Chicago in northeastern Wisconsin. Before it was over, in contrast to the 300 people of Chicago, 12 to 1,400 people had died in the Peshtigo Fire. In contrast to the 3.3 square miles that burned in Chicago, 1.3 million acres had burned in the Peshtigo Fire. The fire superheated to more than 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And even those people who attempted to take shelter in the Peshtigo River experienced the oxygen being sucked from the air so that they suffocated if they didn't drown. At the same time, in multiple other cities, in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Illinois, fires raged. For example, 14 miles across Green Bay, not the city, but the bay that is known, Green Bay. A fire started in southern Door County and did not burn itself out until it had moved halfway up the Door County Peninsula to Sturgeon Bay. Port Huron in Michigan. Spontaneously, these fires erupted, taking hundreds of lives and destroying hundreds of square miles and acres of land. In 2004, while you and I were still sleeping, a 9.1 Richter scale earthquake took place in the South Indian Ocean. As a result of the waves that began to build, it swept across multiple islands and nations. People saw sites where the water of the ocean was sucked backwards for a third of, the mo of a mile. And then they looked up to see a wave 100 feet high coming at them. As a result of that tsunami, not the largest that the world has ever known, but the third largest, 228,000 people lost their lives. I tell you these stories, as well as many others that could be told, because we are looking at a passage today when unprecedented acts of disaster will take place, impacting this world. I've entitled this sermon, The Disastrous Acts of God. The first four trumpets, Revelation chapter 8. At this point, when we come to Revelation chapter 8, we see the Lamb breaking the seventh seal. And so incredible and beyond comprehension is the revelation of this seventh seal that all of heaven is silent for a half an hour. Dumbfounded. Unable to respond. Imagine the praise that has gone on uninterrupted 
throughout eternity past, the present, and will do so for eternity future, is interrupted. Never has there been silence coming from the Council of 24, the four Zoah, the angels. They have always worshipped and praised from the moment that they were given life by their Creator. But suddenly, when the Lamb breaks the seventh seal, there is silence in heaven. While the six seals gave us an overall picture of what is going to happen in the tribulation, now we begin to see the specific details of the great tribulation that Jesus said in Luke 21 and verse 35, will come upon all those who live on the face of the earth. The seventh seal is a segue or an avenue, an opening to the seven trumpets. And within those seven trumpets are three tares, or it might read woes in your Bible. And those three tares or woes represent an escalation of the intensity of the judgments that you and I see when the first four trumpets are blasted. The seventh trumpet ultimately segues into the seven bowls, the final plagues of God's wrath. And these judgments are why Jesus stressed to his disciples, including us, that we must keep alert at all times and pray that we might be strong enough to escape these coming horrors and stand before the Son of Man. Let me simply ask you this morning before we go any further, did you pray this prayer this week? Did you pray this week, Jesus, sanctify me, cleanse me from sin, keep my heart from being set on anything of this life. Work in me so that I might escape what is going to happen and be able to stand before you. Listen, if Jesus said we must pray, we better pray. John tells us that there are seven angels who are given seven trumpets. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal on the scroll, there was silence throughout heaven for about half an hour, and I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and they were given seven trumpets. I have often said to you that there are no insignificant details in Scripture. There are passages of Scripture that we skip over. They don't seem to be that important. But every word is God-breathed. And every word matters to God. And every word that is in Scripture will remain forever. Therefore, you and I need to take note of these words. John tells us, I saw seven angels who stand before God, and they were given seven trumpets. The only other place in Scripture where there is a term that is used in a corresponding manner to what John tells us here is found in Luke chapter 1, when the angel Gabriel visited the priest Zechariah to announce that although he and his wife were past childbearing age, God had heard their prayers and that God was going to give them a son, but this son would have a very unique calling. He would fulfill the prophecies of Isaiah and be the voice and the person that prepared the way for the coming of the Messiah. 
You remember Zechariah's reaction. Well, how can I be sure that this is going to happen? The words of the angel are significant. He first of all identifies himself. I am Gabriel. And then he said, I stand in the very presence of God. It is he who sent me to bring you this good news. But now, since you don't believe what I said, you will be silent and unable to speak until the child is born. For my words will certainly be fulfilled at the proper time. Note the unique position that Gabriel has. He stands in the presence of God, or in John's words, before the throne of God. He has unique authority. He is able to decree and exercise the supernatural power that closes the mouth of Zechariah and makes him unable to speak. And his particular ministry is to speak words that result in prophetic fulfillment. Some consider these seven angels to be archangels. Jewish tradition assumes them to be such, such as the angel Michael, presented to us in Scripture as the archangel Michael. But what is clear is that this is an important distinction and that the angels that stand in the presence of God possess unique authority to represent God in all of His prophetic purposes. As Zechariah found out, angels and their work are not to be taken lightly. You and I also get further insight in the prophecy that was given to Daniel, insight into the invisible realm. If you go to the church website and you go back a couple of years in podcasts, you'll find a study that we did in Acts when Peter was imprisoned. And we spoke about this, and we went into detail in Daniel, looking at this work, the authority, the power, the position that angels exercise in the invisible realm. And there we find in Daniel that angels battle demonic forces in the invisible realm Demonic forces who want to prevent the fulfillment of God's prophetic purposes. And angels who battle so that these prophetic purposes of God will come to pass. At the end of that particular revelation, when Daniel was told, of the principalities that are exercising authority over yet-to-come empires, such as the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great and the Roman Empire. Daniel says, I took my position in prayer to support the angel who is over my people. You see why you and I need to pray? There is a spiritual battle going on in the heavenly realms. And our prayers here on earth weaken the powers of darkness in the spiritual realm and enable the purposes of God to go forth. John tells us, then the seven angels with the seven trumpets prepared to blow their mighty blast. Throughout Scripture, we find many references to trumpets, to the sounding of trumpets. 
For example, in the wonderful worship psalm, Psalm 150, we praise Him with the blast of trumpets. Or in battle, God had instructed Joshua that while the people were to be silent, as they marched around Jericho, the priests were to blast the trumpets. And then on the seventh day, the people would shout a shout of victory. In Numbers 10, God goes into great detail, mandating the sounding of trumpet blast for different occasions and purposes. There was to be a sounding of the trumpet when the people were to gather together and hear Moses. A sounding of the trumpet when they were to begin their journey, follow the cloud, and move to the next place where God was taking them. A sounding of trumpets in their time of worship, their festivals, when they brought certain offerings to the Lord. A sounding of trumpets in battle. As a sign to the Lord, we need your help. And he said, I will come and help you. These were all mandated by God. This is what you must do. We have a picture here of these angels. Trumpets are given to them by God. There is a specific purpose for them having these trumpets. And each blast is going to accomplish a particular thing. The trumpet blasts of these angels fulfill the announcement that was spoken by the prophet Joel some 700 years before John had this vision. Sound the trumpet in Jerusalem. Raise the alarm on my holy mountain. Let everyone tremble and fear because the day of the Lord is upon us. And this is what you and I are reading about in Scripture. The day of the Lord. It is, the Bible says, a terrible day. A dreadful day. And we see that as we look at these trumpet blasts. Extensive natural disasters are often referred to as an act of God. And people use the words biblical proportions to characterize the widespread devastation that has occurred. The first four trumpet blasts are going to unleash natural disasters that are supernaturally driven. Each will be a true act of God unexplainable in any other way. We also find that they are characteristic of the plagues in Egypt where God acted to administer judgment against Pharaoh and the Egyptians and to demonstrate to both the Egyptians and his people that he was the one true, sovereign God. But those natural disasters, what occurred there, was localized. It happened in Egypt. In fact, it was so localized that the Hebrews living in the land of Goshen could look over and see it happening to the Egyptians but it wasn't taking place in their own land, on their streets, and in their towns. They didn't need to worry about it. Ah, there's another picture here that you and I are going to see as we get into this further. God keeps his people. Until the very last one, and then the Hebrews remember needed 
to kill the lamb and put the blood on the doorpost and the lintel if they were going to be protected from the angel of death. Again, another picture for you and me. If we are going to be protected from the greatest disaster of all, the one that affects everyone, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, then we need to be covered by the blood of Jesus. And as we see in the words of Jesus, this will come upon all who live on the earth. If you and I want to escape, we need to be under the covering of Jesus. There are also prophecies in the Old Testament that make reference to what God did in Egypt and declares that what He's going to do in the days to come will exceed those judgments. The first trumpet. We read, the, angel, the first angel blew his trumpet, and hail and fire mixed with blood were thrown down on the earth. One third of the earth was set on fire. One third of the trees were burned. And all the green grass was burned. Now in all of these trumpets, there is first an action, then a result, there is a way in which it corresponds to what took place in Egypt. And then there are other prophetic scriptures that are associated and fulfilled. The action when the first angel blows his trumpet results in hail and fire mixed with blood thrown down on the earth. Interesting, isn't it? We had some hail a couple of nights ago. Hail and fire in Scripture both represent judgment. But they are completely opposite in their physical properties. But God mixes them together with blood. It's thrown on the earth, and the result is that one-third of the earth is burned up. One-third of the trees and all the green grass. Think of what a disaster that is going to bring. Think of all that will be consumed. Houses, businesses arable land for farming, raising crops, the oxygen that will be sucked out of the atmosphere because of the loss of trees and the burning of the fires. It corresponds to the seventh plague. We read about it in Exodus chapter 9, verses 22 to 32. And it fulfills the words of Joel chapter 2 and verse 10 when God said, I will cause wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. Do you want to be here during that time? The second trumpet. Then the second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain of fire was thrown into the sea. One-third of the water in the sea became blood. One-third of all things living in the sea died. And one-third of all the ships were destroyed. I want to draw your attention to what John says. Now, in the New Living Translation, it's not presented this way, but if you will look in your New International Version, it says something like, a great mountain of fire. We have seen John using this terminology numerous times. He will say, I saw something like. It appears over and over because John has no human concepts that correlate with what he is seeing and that represent and depict it exactly. So the best that he can do is say, it's something like this that we have all seen or that we can imagine. 
If you study the book of Revelation and you study it with any extensiveness, that you will find that there are almost as many different interpretations as books you pick up. These are all supposedly written by biblical scholars and men and women of God. Each believes that he has the right translation. As we said much earlier in our study of Revelation, people approach the interpretation of this book from different perspectives. Some approach it from a historical perspective, that it represents a timeline of humanity in the church. And so these events that you and I are studying right now represent different things that took place in the history of humanity, the Roman Empire, the history of the church. Others see them as very symbolic of certain things. In studying the book of Revelation and reading what people write, I often think, how in the world could you come up with something like this? Here's what you and I do. When we read the Word of God, we accept it as the Word of God. And we believe that what it says is what it means. If we try to ascribe this understanding and that symbolism, all we do is create chaos and confusion. So, for example, when you and I read that a third of everything living in the sea died, and one-third of all ships on the sea were destroyed, if that does not represent things living in the sea and ships on the sea, what in the world could it possibly represent? If, as in the previous one, the earth does not mean the earth, and the grass does not mean the grass, and the trees do not mean the trees, then what in the world do they mean? And only when you and I read something like, do we understand that we don't know exactly what it is. But what we do know is that it corresponds to a description that John gave us. And so he said, I saw something like a great mountain of fire thrown into the sea. What was the result? One-third of the sea became blood. One-third of the fish died, and one-third of shipping liquefied natural gas tankers, crude oil tankers, shipping containers, car transport ships, navies of different nations, fishing trawlers, one-third of all ships on the ocean are destroyed. It corresponds to the first plague in Egypt when Moses lifted his rod over the sacred life source of the Nile and it was turned into blood and all the fish died. Psalm 105 and verse 29 says, He turned their water into blood, poisoning all the fish. The third trumpet. Then the third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from the sky, burning like a torch. It fell on one-third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star was bitterness. It made one-third of the water bitter, and many people died from drinking the bitter water. The action that John sees is a great star. It is blazing like a torch. But whereas this mountain that was burning fell on salt water, this star falls on the sources of fresh water. And as a result, one-third of all freshwater sources will become toxic. 
resulting in the deaths of many people. In studying for this sermon, I was researching red tide. You may be familiar with that term. It represents a particular algae. We most often hear it in the news affecting the coasts of Florida. It is growing, becoming more extensive. It is toxic. It causes fish to die. And it can cause respiratory and skin problems for anyone who is in its toxic waters. There are also freshwater algae, like red tide in salt water. We find it, for example, in the Great Lakes. A number of years ago, this toxic algae poisoned the waters of the city of Toledo, Ohio, which draws its water from Lake Erie, just as Baltimore City draws it from the reservoirs and from the Susquehanna River. And as a result, the whole city could not drink the water, but had to rely on bottled water being provided for a number of days for all of their needs. Once again, if natural disasters like this can happen, how much more when God is behind them carrying out His judgment? In Jeremiah chapter 9 and verse 15, So now, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says, Look, I will feed them with bitterness and give them poison to drink. Your Bible might call this star wormwood. Wormwood is a herb. It is poisonous. It is toxic. It is irritating. It is inflaming. It is found extensively throughout the land of the Middle East. It is used again and again in Scripture by God to declare that I will make your world bitter because of your sin. The fourth trumpet. Then the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and one-third of the sun was struck, and one-third of the moon, and one-third of the stars, and they became dark. And one-third of the day was dark, and also one-third of the night. We don't know what God does. We don't know whether He uses eclipses, or whether He simply shuts the lights off. But the sun is struck, the moon, the stars... And one-third of the sun, the moon, and the stars become dark. The result is that the length of a day is shortened and that when people go out at night and look up, there are no stars to be seen. There is no moon to be seen. Now, that's not a particularly big deal for you and I who live in a metropolitan area where there is a lot of light pollution and we can't see very many stars anyway. But imagine for a moment that you live someplace in the world, and I'm sure that you have seen this at some places back home, where at nighttime you can look up in the sky and there are billions of stars. Imagine you went out one night and they were not there. You could not see a single star. We read concerning the plague in Exodus chapter 10, the ninth plague, that there was darkness in the land and it was so dark that people could feel the weight and the heaviness of it. If you visit 
a cavern, such as Luray Caverns. And you go down and you look at all the wonderful creations of the stalactites and the stalagmites. One of the things that they will do is turn the lights off. And you could put your hand right here. And you could not see your hand. It will be that kind of darkness. Isaiah 13 and verse 10 says, The heavens will be black above them. The stars will give no light. The sun will be dark when it rises. And the moon will provide no light. This chapter ends with John telling us that the worst is yet to come. The worst is yet to come. Then I looked and I heard a single eagle crying loudly as it flew through the air, tear, tear, tear to all who belong to this world because of what will happen when the last three angels blow their trumpets. The first four judgments were directed against nature, resulting in ecological and economic disaster and the loss of many lives. But those four judgments cannot be compared with the next three that are coming. The next three are so horrible that they are called tears or woes. And they will be directed not against nature, but against humanity. And the result will be unimaginable physical suffering emotional and mental torture to the extent that people will beg to die and attempt to take their lives. But God, as part of those terrors, will not allow them to die. Woe, woe, woe. Jesus used the word woe numerous times. He used it in an immediate sense and an eschatological sense, looking into the future to the end of time. He predicted unescapable judgment for the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, whom he called blind guides. You will not escape. He spoke to the cities in which he had done most of his miracles. But they did not repent. And he said to them, You will find out that it's worse for you in the last day than it was for Sodom and Gomorrah when I destroyed them by fire. Can you imagine? The word appears dozens of times in Isaiah. For example, in chapter 3 and verse 9, the look on their faces testifies against them. They parade their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them! They have brought disaster upon themselves. Verse 11, woe to the wicked! Disaster is upon them. They will be paid back for what their hands have done. Again and again, we find this word woe in chapter 5. Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. Woe to those who rise up early in the morning and run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they are inflamed with wine. Woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit and wickedness as with cart ropes. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions 
at mixing drinks. Friends, if you have alcohol in your house, put it away. Clean your house out. It doesn't belong there. Jesus, for one, is not touching it, the fruit of the vine, until he shares it with his church at the marriage supper of the Lamb. If it's listed among the woes, it should not be present in our homes. Among the dozens of times that the word woe is used in Isaiah, we only find one positive reference. We use positive because it is the only time that it produced a good outcome, even though when it was used, it was out of terror. When Isaiah found himself in the presence of the Holy God, he was filled with alarm and terror, and he cried out, Woe to me, I am ruined! I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah not only recognized his own sinfulness, he recognized the sinfulness of the culture around him. Jesus prayed that we would be in the world, but not of the world. There should be nothing of this world's culture that out-influences the culture of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the culture of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. If there is something about this life, something about our heritage, our culture that we hold on to, and it's not a production of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, Woe is us. Woe is us. There is nothing that you and I can justify of ourselves in light of a holy God. There is nothing that we can hold on to, nothing that we bring along that has merit and value. Nothing matters except that I become like Jesus. You and I need to acknowledge our need and seek the Lord now, now, before it's too late. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Now, it is time to seek the Lord while he may be found. You and I are going to come to the Lord's table in just a minute. We're going to read a few verses of Scripture from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where the Apostle Paul is giving instructions to the church at Corinth concerning coming to the Lord's table. You and I are most familiar with the words, This is my body. Drink this in remembrance of me. This bread, this cup. But in that passage, the Apostle Paul also talks about you and I examining ourselves. And then he said, For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. When Isaiah cried out in terror, woe is me, I look like my culture, I look like my world, I think like them, I do what they do, I am an unclean man because I'm a product of this world. It was only then that the cherubim took the coal from off the altar and flew to him touched him and cleansed him and sanctified him. You and I need to recognize our sinfulness and cry out to God. It is the only way that he can help us.
when we do, He will be faithful. I love the benediction that the Apostle Paul gave to the church at Thessalonica at the end of his first letter. May God Himself, the God of peace, sanctify you, make you holy, set you apart from this world and from sin to Himself. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and He will do it. Amen. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your truth. We thank You for the hope that we have. We also thank You For the understanding that you give us that shows us why we need to set our hearts fully on the hope that will be revealed at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And how disastrous it will be if we allow our hearts to be set on anything of this world. Thank you for your word. Thank you that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. But Father, you also tell us if we claim we have no sin, well, that's not sin, that's okay. The truth of God is not in us. And we are revealed to be liars. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to see ourselves as Isaiah saw himself. in contrast to your holiness. And if we cry out to you, you will do a work of cleaning, a work of transforming, a work of making us like Jesus. That is what we need. I pray today, O oh God, that that is what we will pursue. That we will seek you today with all of our hearts. In your name we pray, amen.